Hey everybody, this is Jim. And this is Mike. And we have show number 14 for you. And Mike, what are we going to talk about today? We are going to go back before rock, rock and roll, to rockabilly. Okay. Today we hope to explore the origins and then get into some present day stuff. Yeah. And uh, we've learned so much and we hope others can learn too. Yeah, been listening to a lot of rockabilly. Too much, you know. I I got this new pompadour. Oh, yeah? You know, did you notice? I got a hair yeah. transplant. And yeah, I yeah. I, guess, I, I noticed, yeah. yeah, you weren't wearing a hat anymore, and so yeah. look what sprung up. And I, I, I was going to, I went to the leather store, mm-hmm. you know, but they yeah. didn't have any leather pants, so I had to, I ended up with chaps. So <laughs> that's what I'm wearing Yeah, for the yeah. listeners. <clears throat> Luckily, yeah. there's no video. And we have this table, which will sustain, knock on wood. Yeah. So let's... Uh, yeah, so Jim... Um, Let's, let's let's get into before rock to rockabilly. You know we've been interviewing uh, musicians, say uh, Claude S from Anything Box, mm-hmm. synth alt pop, taking us back, you know, twenty five years, you know, to uh, thirty five years to the eighties. Okay. We've interviewed yeah. we've interviewed Chuck Negron, uh, still singing and still playing guitar. In the 1960s, you know how many years ago that was. We're going to go yeah, back we're even going further. Way back. We're yeah. taking it back further than. Uh, Three Dog Night and their rock and roll. Even before we were born. Yes. Can you imagine that? <laughs> so, you know, we talk about rock and roll so much being the the base of what all these other genres and styles that came from it. But this is mm-hmm. before. This is before. This is we're going to take us up into the, the birth of rock. I think to understand rockabilly, we have to think about what was going on at the time. We're talking, Jim, 1940s and 1950s. Mm-hmm. You had... People of all ages, uh, maybe immigrants, mm-hmm. actually from wherever, yeah, uh, from Europe, bringing over their classical and listening to it only the opera. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking about the culture, the culture of the U.S. What was going on, and then here in the U.S., not brought to it was our country, classic country, not mm-hmm. today's country, which sounds like rock, right? Yeah. But um, you know, you've got country, you've got jazz, and it's various forms here. What was popular back then? Big band. Mm-hmm. Harry James leading big band. Oh, yeah. And you've got your, your different forms of big band jazz. You know, you've got the swing. Okay. I think um, jazz jazz and blues. Mm-hmm. Blues uh, pretty much uh, beginning of, you know, the, the more upbeat right. kind of music. So you've got blues going on at this time. But remember, mm-hmm. our nation is even more segregated than now. It was, oh, yeah. it was really segregated. And so mm-hmm. black music was blues and it was separate. You, people couldn't play together, be together. You yeah, know? they were playing yeah. in these uh, little clubs. That yeah, people didn't and then I'm also about. and then I'm also thinking about, and this this brings in the hillbilly part. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the traditional folk music, uh, the Appalachian. You know, down south they call it Appalachian, yeah. not Appalachian. <laughs> so the Appalachian music and the the country that's that's back in. You know, mm-hmm. the, the people playing the spoons and the washboards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anything so, they could find right. in the kitchen. Yeah. So so all this is happening, and. This is what comes next. People going, taking it a step further and blending these. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, experts in the field, experts who know about the rockabilly even more than you and I do, you know, they talk about a blend of country and rhythm and blues and bluegrass. Yeah. You know, and, and just kind of blending. And we're talking uh, 1920s. Yeah. You know, real early on uh, in the early 1900s. Right, right. And, uh, there was a, a a type of country music 
and uh, we'll talk about this later too, a little bit more down south, and, and it was called Hillbilly Music. They yeah. called it Hillbilly, mm-hmm. and uh, it started being a little uh, derogatory at first, but you know, we'll, we'll see how that, how that plays out. So, you know, there's a close relationship between the blues and country music. Mm-hmm. And again, you think about the blues. What is, what is blues bringing to this? And what is, what is rhythm and blues bringing to this? Yeah. Yeah. It's bringing the rhythm and the, the strong backbeat and the rhythm. But, uh, you know, segregation, you know. Yeah. People, people who are of color, people who are black, especially in the South, they're doing their own thing with rhythm and blues. Mm-hmm. And country is a white thing, separate. Yeah. You know, and they're not together and they're they're bringing it together. Yeah. Where um, country is mostly uh, white and blues, mostly um, black. Right. Music. Um, and this is where eventually merged together. Right. People are bringing it together and they're looking beyond race. And that's the beautiful yeah. thing. You know, oh, we yeah. talk about in 2020, mm-hmm. just uh, you know, people who are a generation younger than us can't even imagine what it's like yeah. to 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 not have people of color who are popular. Yeah, I mean this this you are not popular. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. matter how good you are at, at blues, at rhythm and blues. Uh, if you were really funky, yeah, um, you had to in in secret. Yeah, work with white musicians. Well, I was surprised, and I might be getting a little bit ahead of me, but mm-hmm. uh, I was surprised to find out that there were segregated music stations. There wow. were black music yeah. stations, white music stations. So I'm sure the um, white music stations would not play blues, and vice versa. You know, with the uh, black stations would not play country music. Right. Uh, back in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys were uh, promoting Western swing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you got country singing and steel guitar, but with the big band influences and horn sections yeah. and, and bringing us all together. You know, and so uh, the white man, <laughs> the white musicians are hearing this, this, this awesome bass and, and rhythm and saying, yeah, I want some of that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Wills is quoted as saying, rock and roll. Why, man, we've been doing that for, for since 1928, you know, and, and just the rhythm that, that, that comes there. Um, there was a nationwide boogie craze starting in 1938, so my research says. You know, boogie, uh, <laughs> those who can define it, most of them are gone now. It's, it's getting moving, right? Yeah. To boogie, you know, getting you up. And, yeah, and, even the even the members of the band would be jumping around and hooting and hollering. Right. You know. Yeah, it's the performance yeah. part of it. We want to talk about that later too. It says here the the Maddox brothers uh, were at the leading edge of rockability with the slap bass of Fred Maddox. Mm-hmm. Okay, so something that was that was to bring this honky tonk feel is just bringing it from the low end up the, yeah. the bass now uh fred fred maddox he uh, played the upright bass mm-hmm. uh using the slap bass technique mm-hmm. as early as 1937 wow uh, so you're slapping the strings you're not just uh strumming across picking them you're 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 getting your chord you're, you're getting your your tune and then you're smacking it yeah So let's talk about the Maddox Brothers. Yeah. They played hillbilly music. um, And they played real loud for that time. Uh, 
That's it, interesting to bring the volume up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and mm -hmm. they were known for their antics mm -hmm. uh, on stage. I'm quoting from, of course, Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. The demonstrative Maddoxes help release white bodies from traditional motions of decorum. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. They would get people up, up and about dancing. Mm -hmm. And they were not only at the leading edge, it says, but they were one of the first rockabilly groups. So the, the Maddox brothers, of course, they were brothers. Mm -hmm. And then there was Rose, which was their sister. Oh, cool. uh, so they were known as Maddox Brothers and Rose. Mm -hmm. Now, they had a song called Sally Let Your Bangs Hang Down. Ooh. Now, I don't know if you listened to this. No, I haven't heard that one. This had risque lyrics. Now, I'm not sure when they recorded this. I think it was probably late 1930s, 40s. Mm -hmm. So it, it starts off, met a gal from old Kentucky. She was happy and go lucky. She called me honey bunny just to make me spend my money. Mm -hmm. So this guy's enamored with this girl. You know, he's chasing this girl. But these lyrics for this time period, I'll find out what Sally's got that makes the boys think she's so hot. Wow. <laughs> kind of derogatory. Yeah, yeah. Now, but, um, well, and it could be more specific back then, like, you know, because it wasn't known, like, she's hot. Yeah. Like, yeah. to be more specific, I'm getting hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, now I caught Sally changing clothes. She was in a perfect pose. Mm -hmm. um, Sally caught me peeking in, but I don't think it was a sin. Mm -hmm. And then it goes, you know, Sally, let your bangs hang down. And then eventually in the song, uh, she hopped up on my pony and she ran away with Tony. So, you know, she takes <laughs> off with another guy. Uh -huh. Right. But right. The, uh, Sally caught me looking at her, you know, changing her clothes. Right. So, so Jim, you know, all all this, these lyrics are being played with music, but they're not being still and just sitting there or just standing there, yeah. like your typical uh, country white guy playing country. This this band you're talking about, they are known for their quote, quote antics on stage. You know, yeah. so so what's the goal here? What we see, what we're seeing with 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 um, the mix of styles together to make uh, rockabilly is that they're they're being aggressive they're being experimental mm -hmm. and wild physically yeah they're actually on stage being physical i mean they weren't doing that before yeah. i mean think about think about classical think about the other things i mentioned uh they're just they're, they're performing their music it's for your ears only and not for your visual they were going wild oh yeah yeah mm -hmm. it wasn't refined and then uh, mm -hmm. and they uh this song is very very fast there, there's hooting and hollering in the yeah. beginning of it it's it's you hear Rose like yelling out stuff in the song, and it's a great song. So if you check it out, right? And so we've got uh, some examples of them blending the styles, them blending the genres uh, to make and create rockabilly. I want to refer to um, to Zeb Turner. This is in 1953, mm -hmm. um, and just. Uh, using uh, a mix of musical styles and lyrics and just really uh, a guitar solo, you know, and, and bringing that all together. Bill Monroe, mm -hmm. uh, a band I was in, an ancient folk band, uh, my uh, band leader at the time, he, he knows Bill Monroe well, as the father of bluegrass. So, so bluegrass. Bluegrass is known for uh, not having that low end. Mm -hmm. You know, not having a lot of bass and not having drums. You don't have yeah. drums. You might, you might bang on that. I think a banjo. Yeah, it's all it's all mid to high, and so and so to to bring in your your ballads and other things 
it's it's an influence there, but it's straight rock and roll strays mm-hmm. rock and roll progresses far from that. The honky tonk sound. My first, what's your first experience with honky tonk? Honky tonk, watching the Waltons on Thursdays okay. at eight. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Big dilemma in the family. The well, Waltons. also, uh, I would say hee haw for me. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Picking and a grinning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when, if you watch the Waltons in the seventies, it was a big family dilemma. I mean, they almost, mm-hmm. you know, Jason almost uh, <laughs> uh, was excommunicated <laughs> from the family. Why? Because he played piano okay. down at the. I can't remember the name of the bar. Okay. But he played down. He played piano at honky tonk style down at the bar for money. That was his first. Well, I think job. of a honky tonk also as a place. Right. You know, that plays honky at, at the honky tonk. Right. But yeah. it plays. They play honky tonk music. That's what yeah. they do there. Yeah. And so uh, you know, it was a lot of this stuff. Uh, you think about uh, people who are conservative in their thoughts. They didn't want anything to do with jazz. They didn't want anything to do with with honky tonk. Because what you're doing, you know, you read the, you read your lyrics about Sally, yeah. and I mean, this is this is a cultural shift. It's huge to be talking about and playing and singing loudly things that you're normally just thinking of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, honky tonk, of course, is energetic and up tempo. I'm here in the piano. Uh, people who really brought honky tonk that that it says hillbilly boogie. Okay, so it's Hillbilly and Boogie together were uh, the Maddox Brothers and Rose you talked about, Merle Travis, Hank Williams, Hank Snow, and then Tennessee Ernie Ford. Now, do you think, uh, like, Honky Tonk originate, like, I watch a lot of Westerns, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the Wild Wild West, when was that? Like, the late 1800s and going into... And there's always a piano player and kind of the fast notes and... yeah. You know, right. that kind of... Right, and that's uh, and so uh, ragtime is a style of piano that's played yeah, really okay. rapidly like yeah. that, too. So you got yep. ragtime, but, uh, you know, to say ragtime is really a f- super fast piano playing, but to bring in the band and to bring in uh, songwriting, like you just talked about as an example, um, you know, you're it's a feel, you know, the honky-tonk. And that was more instrumental, I mm-hmm. think, uh, the ragtime. Yes, yes, it was. To add yeah. lyrics. Uh, mm-hmm. So... Uh, Referencing here, uh, Curtis Gordon, 1953. He's got a song, Rompin' and a Stompin'. Mm-hmm. And then it talks about way down south where I was born. They rocked all night till the early morn. They started rocking. They started rocking and a rolling. Hmm. End quote. Rocking and a rolling. I mean, is this the beginning of the phrase rock and roll? Well, I can tell you, a guy by the name of Alan Freed, he mm-hmm. had a radio show. He was the first person that, I guess, brought it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, to a huge audience, uh, the term rock and roll. Mm-hmm. He's the one that yeah. supposedly coined it, but he may have heard it. Maybe right. he mm-hmm. heard it from someone. Mm-hmm. But he he's the one that they right. Know. And and the title, the designation of the genre rock and roll. It's it's movement. You're rocking. You're moving. You're yeah. rolling. It's just a constant movement. You might be rolling back and forth. <laughs> yeah. or shuffling. <laughs> Don't know. Yeah. Could have been called rock and shuffle. Right. You know. And so, Jim, I thought it was interesting, and uh, I didn't know if you want to talk about this later, but uh, the themes, you know, the lyrical themes within Rockabilly, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are they writing about? There's nothing subtle. There's nothing disguised. It's it's just we're going to have a good time. And you can hear it through the ages, through the decades to present day Rockabilly. Mm -hmm. It's a um, a staple. It's a it's a it's a defining. It makes you feel good. Right. You listen to Rockabilly. Yeah. And you'll hear their lyrics. Right. 
uh, mm-hmm. the Stray Cats. I mean, you'll just yeah. hear it. We're gonna rock. We're 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 out mm-hmm. to have a good time. Yeah. I mean, that is the lyrics. The lyrics is what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I just think that is. I think that's fascinating. Moving on to Carl Perkins. This yeah. is um, him and his brother Jay and Clayton Perkins. They uh, have the Perkins Brothers Band, mm-hmm. and uh, they were one of the hottest bands. They just they have a, a phrase, uh, get hot or go home. You know, it's the hot. They played in the Tennessee honky tonk circuit and just aggressive, aggressive. They they uh, did uh, jived up versions of Hank Williams standards mm-hmm. and they played it faster. So they're playing yeah. it faster and harder. And uh, and guess what? Yeah. People liked it. Yeah. Right. That made it popular. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It says here, uh, in some research that I did, it says that Carl was always watching the dance floor at all times to see a reaction and to see Mm. that the more rhythmically driving style was what the kids were liking. It's what the people Mm -hmm. were liking. That, you know, you could sing a ballad to them, but then they quiet down, they listen. But but if you really want to get them going... Yeah, you know, you have that that driving rhythm. Oh, it's funny. Carl would uh, was sending demos to New York companies who kept rejecting him, and sometimes they would explain that the strange style was uh, it, it didn't fit any commercial trend. Mm-hmm. Which you know, we look yeah. back now, it's it's ironic. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, of course that changed uh, with the recording of the song "Blue Suede Shoes" in 1955. So this is uh, this is Tennessee. It's interesting. A lot of the rockabilly stuff here. Uh, a lot of stuff's happening in the uh, the Tennessee area. Mm-hmm. You know, Memphis. Yeah, places like that. There was something in Memphis, downtown Memphis. This was 1953, 1954. It was called the Saturday Night Jamboree, and they would come and obviously on Saturday night and just jam. And there was people uh, who would come: Elvis Presley, uh, Johnny and Dorsey Burnett. Charlie Feathers, just uh, mm-hmm. an array of people would come there. So every Saturday night in 1953, people would be there and they would experiment with new sounds. And they're mixing fast country. So you're taking your country, but probably just taking the, the fast part of it, not the slow ballads. Yeah. Fast country, gospel, blues, and boogie woogie. little side note, you know, I was thinking about country and, and they just mentioned gospel in here. The only difference between country and gospel was the subject matter, right? Mm-hmm. It's what you're, what yeah. you're, what are you talking about, you know? And so, uh, and so, a lot of this does stray from gospel, uh, but of course, from then all the way up to now, people are doing music in church, just like the same kind of music as anywhere else, mm-hmm. just talking about something different. So uh, here at the Saturday Night Jamboree, uh, talking about uh, people just experimenting, bringing their new licks. Licks. So um, the name Rockabilly, you know, we talked about rock and roll, rocking and rolling. But uh, we see here, I found this really interesting, Jim, that the name Rockabilly, there was the Rockabilly Boogie as a song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, the Burnettes, yeah. Johnny and Dorsey. Now, Johnny and Dorsey both had children during this time. And believe it or not... One was named Rocky, and the other was named Billy. Yeah. That's weird. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so they're writing the Rock Billy, the Rock Billy Boogie. It wasn't uh, recorded until later, but people were yeah. getting that. They were getting it live. They were hearing about the Rock Billy. Yeah, they said, unfortunately, it wasn't recorded, because mm-hmm. maybe if they recorded it, you know, in the early 50s. Yeah. I mean, they, they obviously might have coined the term 
yeah. rockabilly. It was four years later that it was recorded. In those four years, yeah. the culture's changing. The people are hearing rockabilly, rockabilly. Yeah, and we yeah. wonder when the term rockabilly actually mm-hmm. came into existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have... Well, it blends in. You know, that's what I'm saying. It kind of blends in. People hear about it, talk about it from Tennessee. To... Yeah, because I think when... Uh, with Carl Perkins, uh, of course, Blue Suede Shoes. Yeah. When Elvis recorded it, um, I don't even know if they were, at that time, they were calling it Rockabilly. They just oh, didn't no. know mm-hmm. what what it was. Right, right. The the Burnettes, I don't know if you... Now, Mike and I, we we, we listen to... There's a playlist on Apple Music. Right. It's uh, Rockabilly Essentials. Mm-hmm. There's a hundred songs in there. Uh, some some newer, some mm-hmm. really old. You find some common themes, co- yeah. common uh, things with musically as well. Mm-hmm. But the one song that Train kept a rolling. It's unique. The guitar in that, and we'll, we're going to get into this because it has a distorted sound. Right. I'm like, what is like that had to be like not like nothing anybody had ever heard of before. Right. If you hear it now, you'd say, okay, I can take it or leave it. It's distortion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but back then they were purists. They they you would never had a you would never make a note or a sound that sounded worse and distorted. Yeah, it'd be like me ruffling my voice right now. So yeah. this was the first this was the first time we heard a distorted guitar, right? Probably. Right. And there there is a story about this. And you listeners know a train kept a rolling. We'll talk about. Yeah. More so about the, it. Mm-hmm. the use of uh, distortion on a rock and roll record was more accurately Rocket eighty eight by Jackie Brenston. And the Delta Cats. Those cool cats. Now, there's a legend behind this, Mm -hmm. um, how the sound came about. Uh, Guitarist Willie Kizart's amplifier was damaged on Highway 61 when the band was driving from Mississippi to Memphis, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. An attempt was made to hold the cone in place. Speaker cone. Yeah, uh the speaker cone. Mm -hmm. By stuffing the amplifier with wadded newspapers which unintentionally created a distorted sound. Right. So, you know, a lot of great things, um, inventions sometimes are uh, created by mistake. Mm-hmm. So know? so when they heard that, you know, Jim, I, I bet you some people in the band uh, didn't like it. Again, it was like a muffled sound. And so, uh, but then those who were on the cutting edge would say, that's different. I kind of yeah. like it. Yeah. You know? And over time, as stories go, people, I think, had, uh, they have different versions of how the speaker was damaged, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, one person thought it had fallen from the top of the car. And then um, a guy by the oh, Ike Turner, mm-hmm. I'm say a guy by the name of Ike Turner. We know Ike Turner. <laughs> he stated that the amplifier, I don't know if he was there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if these people were there. They're just, uh, mm-hmm. I assume maybe he was there. Uh, that the amplifier was in the trunk of the car and that rain may have caused the damage. Mm-hmm. So they're all like, you know, making yeah. up different stories about yeah. how this, this started. I think maybe... <laughs> depends, who, depends who was there, or maybe right? they there, all yeah. wanted to say, I was there. Yeah. I was there when distortion started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so Train kept a rolling. Uh, you've got... Uh, various artists over the years uh, doing that, and I was mm-hmm. I was listening to some. I thought it was interesting. You've got Aerosmith, the Yardbirds. Oh, the and, Aerosmith version's great. Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to find my favorite version. In fact, now do you know if uh, Kesha ever did that? I I, I was curious. Yeah, so. Kesha with the dollar sign. Yeah, the yeah, dollar yeah. sign. Yeah. Kesha. Dollar sign. Kesha, I don't think yeah. she did that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
there, if you if you search Apple Music, you'll find I think uh, seven different versions by seven different people of uh, Train Kepa Rowan. But there's something there's something special about that yeah. song. Not as recorded as much as White Christmas, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think we should talk about uh, the person who was the most famous. Uh huh. Uh huh. I'm trying to talk about real. And that would be Elvis Presley. Yeah. So let's talk about Elvis. So Elvis, um, when he recorded That's All Right Mama, that was one of the first songs he recorded. That The legend is that he went into the recording studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this recording studio. I forget what they were charging. It was very low. It was like $3 wow. for a recording. You can go in and record a song or two. Yeah. So he, the legend is that he went in to record a couple songs for his mother. Mm-hmm. The time period is a little off because it was supposed to be for her birthday. Yeah. So Elvis went in, and so they started messing around with this song. Mm-hmm. And the engineer didn't know, you know, what they were doing. Right. He he kind of liked it, and he had him do it, uh, I think, a couple more times. Mm-hmm. I think they were, they were physically jumping around. He said they were just kind of going wild, right? It wasn't just uh, musically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he didn't know what it was. Because he took this song, um, I think it was, uh, That's All Right Mama was written, you know, not by Elvis, of course. Yeah, it was recorded in 1946, first recording of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in this song, he married black and white genres Mm -hmm. to an extent that it was denied airplay on white country radio stations and black R&B stations so, like we, we talked about earlier. Yeah, so it's not getting played on, on either place, yeah, but especially yeah. Uh, wouldn't be played on, on white stations that, yeah. yeah. So when the song was finally played by one rogue DJ, Dewey Phillips, <laughs> uh, Presley's recording created so much excitement it was described as having waged war on segregated radio stations. Yeah. And we don't think of Elvis as... You know, plowing the way and and doing the work to uh, to desegregate, but musically he w- he was here. And this was Presley Presley singing halfway between a country western R and B rock and roll style. Mm-hmm. They said sent teenagers into a trance. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's hard to imagine that, but uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. a good song, but yeah. it's not it it's not a song that I guess when you I guess back then when you heard this song, right. You know, but it doesn't really knock me out, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And and uh, since we're mentioning Elvis here, I really see Elvis as, as uh, with his popularity, kind of the the beginnings of rock and roll, like going into the wildness mm-hmm. that is rock and roll. And we know it because of, uh, you know, just the way he moved, you know, uh, just moving his hips, moving, dancing around. Again, not just doing music, but performing. I remember... Uh, when I was um, young and went to my friend's house and uh, I went there to visit and his just down the street and his mother mm-hmm. was crying and it was 1977. Yes. When Elvis died. Yeah. And I said to my friend, I said, what's, what's wrong? Is she okay? And he said, yeah, just uh, somebody, uh, some musician or something, somebody died. Wow. Like, oh, okay. And that was it. But she was, she was distraught and it was a day that Elvis died. So it didn't mean as much to me. I was pretty young. And yeah. uh, just getting into a little bit of rock and roll, which, you know, he had a great part in. But I uh, wasn't this some classic yeah, uh, hard rock in. a little bit, but uh, but not really understanding. You were like 12. Yeah. Or... Not really understanding the. Uh... It, it meant more to me because my mom loved Elvis. We mm-hmm. had Elvis albums and 
the Elvis Christmas album. So you knew him even by 12. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I knew who Elvis Presley was. I did not. We, um, we went to Graceland. I want to say it was the next year. Mm -hmm. It was the first year that Graceland opened. Mm -hmm. And it was so soon after his death that supposedly his maid, I guess she didn't have anywhere to go. She was still living there. My parents talked to her. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So let's get in uh, a little bit more about Elvis. Okay. Uh, and the, and uh, this has to do with early rockabilly. Uh, at the time, nobody was sure what to call Presley's music. Right, because it's, it's radical. It's yeah. radical. <laughs> and Elvis was described at the time as the hillbilly cat <laughs> and king of Western bop. Cat you know? and bop this is like a whole new lingo. I mean, he was later described as the king of rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. And we, we know what that means. But the yeah. king of Western bop. You know, um, <laughs> trying to make sense out of it, aren't they? By the end of 1954, um, Presley was now using drums, as did many other rockabilly performers. Um, wow. Drums were then uncommon in country music. Yeah. So the bluegrass and the country, both uh, white man standing and playing a guitar and storytelling, not the drums behind him. Yeah. When you yeah. listen to, um, I mean, going way back, like Hank Williams and... Like, if you think about it, you don't hear mm -hmm. what you might hear is a little bit of uh, you would you would know more than me because you're mm -hmm. a drummer. Like yeah. that brush. I don't know what you call it. If it's called a brush, like that brush kind of. Yeah. 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 The so they subtle, would. And if they um, had a drummer, they would make sure that he plays super soft and not put any mics by him. So, it was, yeah. you know, it was really it was very subtle. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then in uh, 1951, a Western swing band leader named Bill Haley, mm -hmm. recorded a version of Rocket 88 with his group, The Saddlemen. Mm -hmm. Now, this is considered one of the earliest recognized rockabilly recordings, Rockabilly 88. And, of course, Bill Haley went on to record Rock Around the Clock, mm -hmm. and that was on April 12th, 1954. Mm -hmm. And the recording was, until the late 1990s, recognized by the Guinness world records as having the highest sales claim for a pop vinyl recording wow with an unaudited claim of 25 million copies sold wow and that was huge and, and mm -hmm. i think of bill haley um happy days mm -hmm. yeah you know uh rock around i think they changed the theme i think it was two different bill haley songs uh but uh, mm -hmm. Jim, since you mentioned pop music, I just want to throw this out there. You know, people uh, and maybe uh, some people um, just getting into music, some people who are quite young might think of pop as a certain uh, genre where actually, you know, pop is just short for popular. Yeah. You know, and so from the 40s to 2020, I mean, this mm -hmm. whole time, uh, pop Music is the popular music of the time. Like in the seventies, pop music was isn't what pop music is now. Yeah, they just didn't it's, call it pop yeah, music. Well it's it's the pop it's the popular music yeah. of the time. And so and that's what if if you want to climb the ladder of success musically, that's where mm -hmm. you were headed towards the, the top of the pop charts. Yeah. You know, pop, to be popular. And so I'm just saying that pop is not an actual genre. Or style pop is the is the popular music of the time, yeah, and, that, and that's any, any and, and that's genre music, and that's where yeah. we're at here, you know, in the fifties, yeah. yeah, in in the mid fifties, you know, yeah. And I was interested in um, the term rockabilly. Mm -hmm. They claim was uh, coined by the the Maine native 
and Connecticut resident, mm -hmm. uh, Bill Flagg. Okay. He began using the term rockabilly for his combination of rock and roll and hillbilly music mm -hmm. as early as 1953. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. The, you know, Bill Haley, uh, 1951. Mm-hmm. They say has one of the earliest recognized rockabilly record, but they didn't call it rockabilly mm -hmm. at the time. And then back to um, Carl Perkins mm -hmm. with Blue Suede Shoes. Yeah. Um, it sold 20,000 records a day at one point. Now, this is the Carl Perkins version, uh, I'm assuming, not Elvis. Mm -hmm. It was the first million-selling country song to cross over to both rhythm and blues and pop charts. Mm -hmm. It's important to note here, too, Jim, that, you know, we're far removed from the time that was pre-internet yeah. and pre-social media. So, so if you go back before the early 90s, even, you know, how did, how did these people... Remember, these yeah. people don't... Th these people have um, three things, basically. You can go out and see them live and say, wow, that was good. Did you guys see that? Yeah. You could hear them on a radio station. So you've got to have a radio and you've got to listen to some good stations. Or you could buy the vinyl. You know, yeah. you've got to buy that vinyl. And, uh, and, and so you would see the popularity of people. It's only going to spread as fast as people can see them. Mm -hmm. People can buy their stuff or even bigger, it starts to move across the radio waves. But it's slower than now. It's slower... Yeah. And and it's different than, than today. I think it, um, yeah, a lot depend on radio airplay. Mm -hmm. Right. I know right. when we were growing up, uh, listen to the radio, that's how I heard a lot of new bands. Right. Uh, new albums. Mm -hmm. And then. And then you would buy, you could buy, you could buy vinyl. Yeah. You'd have to write it down, you know, yeah. what you wanted. And then if you could travel or had money, you could see them live. But really it was radio mostly and then buying the albums. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, um, I want to say people didn't really travel too far to see concerts. No. I mean, you weren't getting on a, a plane and flying somewhere, or even yeah. traveling like three hours. So they'd be regionally popular. Like if you, yeah. if you lived near Memphis, you know, you, you, could, you could get into a lot more, uh, and Nashville has become such a hub. But if you were in Wyoming or North Dakota... You'd have to hope <laughs> that they came to your town. Yeah, but they're probably yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was listening to the um, the Apple Music playlist, um, there was a song called Long Gone Daddy by a guy named Pat Coop, C-U-P-P. So I looked him up. I found him on Facebook, and he recorded this song when he was 17 years old, back in the 50s, and he was nice enough to respond when I told him we were going to talk about the song, and this is what Pat Coop had to say. Um, he said, I was the tender age of 17 when I started writing that song. I was still in high school, and a friend happened to call me that name, Long Gone Daddy, after an encounter with a girl I liked at the time. I did not know at the time that Hank Williams had also had a song with the same title. Mm -hmm. After almost a year, uh, I had a short version of Long Gone Daddy. Uh, long story short... I got into rockabilly music and was doing local shows with a few of the greats and wound up with a recording contract with RPM Records. At the recording session, they told me that the song was too short. 
My mother, who was my piano player, quickly wrote the last verse in order to make it a longer song and had to do that on most of my recordings that day. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, there it is, stuff no one ever really knows about. Thanks for asking and tell all your fans I send a big hello. So I responded um, how it's such a great recording of that song. And I said, you kind of sound a little like Elvis. Mm -hmm. And Pat replied, ha, on Elvis. All rockabilly artists in 1956 sound a little like Elvis. That's just how that music was supposed to sound. Didn't need another Pat Boone. <laughs> and he says, my hero of that time was really Carl Perkins. Carl, Johnny Cash, and I did shows together in the beginning. Wow. And he says, it was really exciting for me, but at the same time, I didn't realize the guys I did shows with would become the icons that they did. There were ups and downs, but mostly fun. So Pat gave us permission to play Long Gone Daddy, which we're going to do right now. So here's Pat Coop with Long Gone Daddy. Never blue, didn't know how to cry, but now if you left me, I know what we because my ever loving mama is. I'm so sweet, well I'm a long gone daddy, 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 I'm a long gone daddy, 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 I'm a long gone daddy, and I'm a home gone for you. Yeah, you took my hand and you held me tight, and then you loved me with all of your might. Looked into your eyes to see, and you look like a real gone mama to me. Well, I'm a long gone daddy. Daddy, daddy, I'm a long gone daddy Oh, mama, I'm a long gone daddy And I'm a home gone for you I used to say a woman wasn't true All a woman done was make a fool out of you Now I understand why a guy ain't free When a cute little baby makes a daddy like me Well, I'm a long gone daddy Daddy, daddy, I'm a long gone daddy Daddy, daddy, I'm a long gone daddy And I'm a home gone for you Let's go, boy. Each podcast, we we end up talking about the Beatles for some reason. Yeah, right. You know? Are you really going to bring the Beatles into this? Yeah. Now, the first wave of rockabilly fans in the United Kingdom, they mm -hmm. were called Teddy Boys. 
that's, and, a, that's a new term. Yeah. yeah. Now, there was a certain style with rockabilly. Um, uh-huh. Now, they wore long Edwardian-style frock coats along with tight black drain pipe trousers. And I assume they're uh, like skinny, what yes. we call skinny pants. Yeah, skinny now. jeans. And brothel creeper shoes. I don't know what they're <laughs> Who's are. creeping the brothels? They might have been Jim. like a kind of a Doc Martin, yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm. And they adopted the classic greaser look of T-shirts, jeans, and leather jackets uh, to go with their heavily slick pompadour haircuts. Mm-hmm. And one of the most notable bands was the Beatles. That's how they started um, playing rockabilly, that type of music. Hmm. You know, as far as like Gene Vincent. Uh, Gene Vincent was Gene Vincent and uh, Eddie Cochran. Uh, they were pretty big, short period of time in mm-hmm. the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did, did a tour over there. Was Eddie Cochran more known in the UK? Than in the U.S. No, he uh, okay. he was known in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, concert promoter uh, booked Gene Vincent uh, for I think six weeks. I just watched a documentary. I get into that a little later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was paid the equivalent today of forty thousand dollars a week. That's huge. So Eddie Cochran was um, up and coming in the U.S. He was uh, on some TV shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted to get Eddie Cochran. They didn't know how much Eddie would want. Well, and I forget the exact price at the time, but it was the equivalent of 12000 a week. Mm-hmm. So they got Eddie and Gene. But I found it interesting and that when John Lennon first met Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. he was impressed that McCartney knew all the chords and the words to Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock. Wow. Which is a great song. Yeah. And when the Beatles became worldwide stars, they released versions of three different Carl Perkins songs. And I know the early Beatles um, don't sound quite as the later Beatles. You right. know, they were doing cover tunes. Yeah, they yeah. were playing the Cavern mm-hmm. Club and they were doing right. stuff like that. And they like it cutting edge because it's already cutting edge. You know, it yeah. sounds funny, rockabilly, you know, it's cutting edge. But it, it yeah. was, and the Beatles were cutting edge at the time. And, and just yeah. looking for what's next... The next level to take it musically. And even mm-hmm. after they broke up, they still showed interest in rockabilly. Uh, mm-hmm. In 1975, John Lennon recorded an album called Rock and Roll, featuring versions of rockabilly hits and a cover photo showing him in full Gene Vincent leather. Wow. I remember that cover. <laughs> like the chaps you're wearing right now. Yeah. 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 Now, with rockabilly, there are certain, back then, there were certain terms. Uh, words that we don't use today still. Yeah, and I'm yeah. going to kind of quiz uh, Mike on this. A oh, bit. you are? Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, Jim, you've got some questions for me here. You're going to see if I know. Uh, yeah. I'm yeah, these are, um, these are some terms. Uh, it says, the year is 1955, movie Rebel Without a Cause, and the beginning mm-hmm. of rock and roll music have inspired a whole generation of teen rebels. And my mother and father are teens at this time, so that's what I'm picturing. Okay, yeah. so they might have used some of these. Terms. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to picture that, probably. Okay. They were cool, they were cool cats. So we got, um, mm-hmm. are you writing a book? Are you writing a book? Is that a phrase that I'm supposed yeah, to guess? Yeah, yeah. Um, are, you, uh, are you doing some songwriting? Are you asking too many questions? <laughs> Are you writing a now book? This, this one yeah. is a good one. Yeah, go ahead. I love this. 
Backseat bingo. Backseat bingo. <laughs> um, you're with your date and you're exploring with your hands. You're necking in a car. Yeah, hey, that was yeah. close. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, got one. Okay, the term Betty. Betty. Let's see. So we got Betty Boop. I think she was around in the 20s or 30s. She called someone a Betty. Yeah, yeah, I know. Just a Betty. Um, Someone who's uh, loose and ready for a good time. No, you're thinking too hard into that. (sighs) A person of the female persuasion. (sighs) Let's see. What do we got here? You probably know this one. Burn rubber. Uh, spin your tires and right. uh, impress impress the girls, but it really didn't impress the girls. It was impressing the boys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cat. Uh, someone who's hip, up on it, cool. Right, a hip person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cherry. Oh wow, that's a difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm is, gonna I'm have gonna to just tell you. I'm I'm gonna have to say it's what's on top of the ice cream float and whipped cream. Well, it was. Yeah, it yeah, served yeah. that in diners. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's an unaltered car. Oh, and so and later, anything attractive. Yeah, unaltered. So a stock, a stock car that was Yeah, that it's was cherry. Nice. Yeah, cherry. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. yeah. I should. I did hear that, but that's been decades. Yeah. Uh, classy chassis. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a car that's attractive. I like your car. It's that's, a classy chassis. It means a great body. I think we're talking about a woman. But oh, we need oh. to bring some of these terms classy back. chassis. Yeah. What? Yeah, getting some trim, Jim. <laughs> uh, how about dig? Uh, yeah, that's groovy. You're really into it. You're interested in it. Yeah, you understand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, eyeball. Eyeball. Well, yeah. it's a verb. You're just going to look at. Um, uh, I'm going to go with a human, a girl, and check her out. Let's just look around. Yeah. Your eyeballs. I was being a little too specific. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's see. Yeah. This is groovy. This is like out of sight, you know? It is, man. Cat. <laughs> cool for cats. You have to be square. Yeah. I got a hot rod and it's ready to percolate. Okay, that's not one. Sorry. <laughs> that's actually a quote from the honeymoon. That's a, that's a coffee metaphor along with an automobile metaphor. You're mixing your metaphors. Let's see here. Um, yeah. Go ape. Uh, go wild, go crazy, go insane. Yeah, get excited. Get excited, yeah. Go ape, that's interesting. It reminds me of George Costanza, but that's, you know, for another day. Uh, let's see here. (laughs) Go ape. Well, we know hep, hep, um, with it, cool. Hep, cool Someone who knows the situation. Mm -hmm. Knuckle sandwich. Yeah, getting punched squarely in the jaw. Yeah, fist Mm -hmm. to the face. Yeah. This I don't know why this. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, did they always did they say I, that in the fifties? Well, I've heard that. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, how would I explain that one? Let me think. Um, um, I mean, it's kind of just just uh, while you were talking about something else, this is what we're doing. I mean, while you're off, you're on... close. Uh, usually used to get a storyteller back on track. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, peepers. <laughs> Uh, peepers are your eyes. Uh, glasses. Oh, I got that wrong. They're, they're glasses? Yeah. I yeah. thought they, they could be eyes. Too. Well, you know, I was thinking Susie and the Banshees. You know, where'd you get yeah. those peepers? Royal Shaft. <laughs> These are, are you serious? Yeah. So it's, some, it's a noun. It's something you get, as in I got the Royal Shaft. She gave me the Royal Shaft. <laughs> you know? No, let me try yeah. and figure it out. Um, um, 
you're 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 dissed, as they say, uh, fifteen years ago. Um, you're uh, you're disrespected. You're um, yeah. you're dropped badly or unfairly treated. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, let's see. Give myself something for that. There we go. Okay, we'll end with this one. Yeah, yeah. Wet rag. Okay, you gave me a hard one to end on here. Wet rag. So wet rag is limp, and it's useless. It's not strong. So a wet rag would be uh, a guy who's a wimp, not strong. It's someone who's just no fun. Ah, oh, no yeah. fun. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, Jim, thinking about uh, Rockabilly and, uh, you know, going over some of the history here, it's really been, been great. It's been educational. Just really thinking about the base that was formed for rock and roll and for all the other things that came after it. Um, but, you know, there's still people doing Rockabilly today. Yeah. Um, but before I get to that, uh, my first experience with Rockabilly, uh, hearing it on the radio, you know, because I was just I was just concerned, uh, you know, as a young adult, as a as a teenager, you know, hard rock, rock and roll, mm -hmm. and then and then you know, you and I got into punk and new wave and alternative. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in the midst of all that, the Stray Cats come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I remember hearing in uh, it was in 1981 is the Stray Cat uh, strut. And yeah, rock, early, rock this early town, 80s. right? And uh, you know, 1981. I was even thinking it was mid 80s, but it's 81. And and for them to be doing that in the midst of, in the midst of you know, goth, you know, <laughs> this is well, I th I this think, is the midst of new wave. Yeah. Well, I think they were. Um, I think it was probably more around 83. Mm -hmm. They they became popular. I mean, their first albums were before that. Yeah. But I think because I know I I saw the Stray Cats in 83. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was at this little place in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I think it was Kirby Fieldhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, where uh, Mike and I saw... Um, That's Bill, Lafayette College, yeah. Bill Cosby. Yeah. <laughs> Lafayette College. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, just want to mention the Stray Cats. They uh, they formed in 1979. Mm -hmm. And so the album that I reference... Um, uh, was 1981, and then, you know, the years that followed. Um, so original, uh, you had six guys in the band, but there's three people, uh, yeah. three original members who continue, mm -hmm. and that's Brian Setzer, Slim Jim Phantom, and Lee Rocker. Yeah. And they continue, uh, you know, to be yeah. Stray Cats. Yeah, and uh, they just put out, believe it or not, mm -hmm. like a month ago, Wow. a live album. Mm -hmm. um, I think I want to say it's called From L.A. to London. And they did reunite several years ago. I'm, I should have gone to see them, and hopefully they'll get back together again. But uh, mm -hmm. it's an incredible live album. It captures the energy, everything. So much energy in the Stray Cats. Doing yeah. rockabilly and just to, to be able to... And that's what I'm, I'm trying to figure out. How are they able to to so forcefully in the, in the 80s, right there, boom, right up into the pop charts? Yeah, yeah, they it, were like, I mean, who knew how many, I mean, I'm sure there were other rockabilly, people still playing rockabilly. Yeah. But they were creating original rockabilly songs. Right, right. And they, so that's, yeah, that for us, I think for both of us, we had never heard mm -hmm. maybe even the term, like I heard. Or didn't care at age 20. Well, I heard Blue mm -hmm. Suede Shoes, yeah, and yeah. I, but I didn't say, oh, that's a great rockabilly song. I didn't right. know the term rockabilly. Right, they right. never said that on the radio, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. You know? The Stray Cats live album, it's, it's I, I want to say it's 20-some songs. Wow. And they do have a song, um, which they do play, I'm not sure if they play every show, but it's been around for a while. It's um, 
I think it's called Rockin' with Gene and Eddie. Hmm. And it's it's an ode to uh, Gene Vincent and mm-hmm. Eddie Cochran. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, obviously a big influence on them. Now, last time I saw on video, uh, Brian Setzer's hair yeah. was was as big as his head. I mean, it was just, yeah. it was just huge. And uh, the video? Yeah, tear it up. Yeah. If you go on YouTube, because I don't think it's available. It's a short video. It's uh, 18 minutes. Documentary long. stuff. Yeah, documentary yeah. on Rockabilly. It's called Tear It Up. If you, want you guys got to gotta check it out. If you don't have a lot of time in mm-hmm. 18 minutes, um, just to learn some of the history, they interview, um, you know, a lot of the older. It, I think it's from, it's got to be from the 80s. Uh, there's a guy they interview. He's since passed away. Mm-hmm. His name was Sleepy Labeef. You got to love that name. You, you, and if, I wanted you know. to, so I'm going to segue kind of into. Do his um, neighbors address him as Sir Labeef? <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, so... Now you think, okay, this is a totally made-up name, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Labeef. Yeah. That's his real last name. <laughs> I don't know what his real first name was. Is it capital B or is it small b? Is it just Labeef? Like... Uh, it's capital It's capital L-E, beef. Capital B? Yeah. Like La Beef. Yeah, La yeah, Beef. The Beef. It means the beef. Yeah. So, <laughs> Rockabilly, you got to have a great Rockabilly name, and... Uh, I'm going to bring up a guy we just interviewed. Mm-hmm. His name is Jittery Jack. Yeah, great guy. Out of uh, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Boston area right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so check out uh, that interview, uh, which was a, uh, we put out a couple weeks ago. Yeah, right before this. Mm-hmm. And um, so... Still, Jittery Jack's still doing it today. Great yeah. great uh, band with him. Great guitarist, Amy. Just It's just oh, it's yeah. fabulous. And... Uh, you'll hear his take on uh, what's going on in the scene today. Yeah, we talk yeah. about um, Martin Guitar, which uh, is is near us, and uh, also we talk about beer and we talk yeah. and we talk about rockabilly. So find out whether he likes it hoppy or uh, yeah. or if he likes a good lager. So uh, you have to have a good name mm-hmm. in rockabilly. I think. Sleepy the Beef. Uh, can yeah. you beat that? I mean, can you can we've, anybody we've, beat that? We've got Narvel Feltz, right? <laughs> okay, Narvel Feltz. Uh, I can say it. We got Jamie James and the Swinging Cats, mm-hmm. Sid King and the Five Strings. You know oh, that's cool. We got Jack Cochran. So I don't, and I I found out there are some people that uh, took on the last name Cochran. Mm-hmm. You know if they're doing rockabilly name recognition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What I love at this one, Peanuts Wilson. Hmm? Okay, Peanuts. So Peanuts Wilson. I almost said Peanuts Labeef. That would be a good one. <laughs> So I, so the Apple, the Apple Music playlist, uh, Rockabilly Essentials. Mm-hmm. If you get a chance, you wanna you wanna listen to um, the best Rockabilly. Someone compiled a hundred songs, Rockabilly songs, mm-hmm. and I picked out some that stood out to me mm-hmm. for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. I like odd songs. We like odd songs. Oh yeah. Okay. So, Peanuts Wilson in 1957. He recorded uh, two songs, mm-hmm. and his career didn't go very far. And I'm pretty sure he—I don't know if he still like played. He's working for Peanuts. But he—he he literally, I'm pretty sure, only recorded like two songs. But one mm-hmm. of these songs is on the the hundred list, wow. and it's called "Cast Iron Fist." <laughs> now, I don't, now, Mike, I don't know if you listen to it. <laughs> no, no, I, no, no. Okay. Cast Iron Fist. 
Now, the interesting, I'll get back to the song in a minute, yeah. but uh, Peanuts, um, his real name was Johnny Wilson. Uh, he's from Texas. Mm-hmm. And he, interesting thing is he was a member of Roy Orbison's group, the Teen Kings, in 1956. What happened was, like I said, he recorded two songs, and then he later became a country music songwriter. So he decided to write songs. Right. So this song is about... Um, this guy and his date, mm-hmm. and they're going bowling. Okay, yeah. T- starts out typical here. Yeah, and all these guys are. He's got this really good-looking girlfriend. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of the rockabilly. Not all of them. You know, got a but, picture of the the nice rods. You know, that's a car. The nice yeah. rods and and uh, and the shakes and burgers and yeah, bowling alley. Got it. Well, I think it's a bowling. I, yeah. I thought it was a bar at first until I I realized he was talking about bowling. Yeah. Actually, just in the beginning of the song, so mm-hmm. they're going bowling. Yeah, and all these guys are looking at this girl, and he he wants to start a fight, and he's got this cast iron fist, <laughs> right? I see where that's going. And the odd thing about this song, there's there's an old guy. I'm sure it's not an old guy. It could be peanuts, mm-hmm. but he'll he'll do some he'll do the lyrics. And then the, the song kind of goes down a little, and, and you'll hear this old guy, and all of a sudden he goes, punch him in the head! <laughs> and then the song continues, and it's just the weirdest thing. But, to, but I imagine him with, you know, like a cast iron fist, like yeah. an actual cast iron fist, but I think it's a term for, yeah, you know, he has a he has a good punch or good something. Solid, good solid yeah. punch, yeah. The other one is Wanda Jackson, now... The other thing is there's not too many, for some reason, uh, women mm-hmm. rockabilly artists. On this list I found, um, we got Wanda Jackson. She's probably the most famous. Right. So I'm sure most people have heard of Wanda Jackson. And mm-hmm. um, you got uh, Janice Martin. You got Barbara Pittman, who did um, I Need a Man. Mm-hmm. And Amelia May. Who we talk about in an interview with uh, Jittery Jack, there's a connection with Amelia May. Mm-hmm. She is an Irish rockabilly artist, fairly new. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's sang with Sinead O'Connor on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the uh, the only four I think I could find on the list of the top 100 female yeah. artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the last one is still performing today. Yeah. Yeah. She's still yeah. still doing something. Yeah. So. One other song here is mm-hmm. um, Fujiyama Mama. Yeah. Which is, uh, Wanda Jackson, 1957. Now, this was an R&B song written by Jack Hammer in 1954. Mm-hmm. And it's best known as a cover recorded by Wanda Jackson in 57. And the song in which the protagonist compares herself to a sexually charged atom bomb was never a hit in the United States. And Jackson's rockabilly-styled cover, however, became a major hit in Japan in the post-World War II era. After they were bombed. That is, that is really despite ironic. Despite explicit references to the devastation of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Wow. She said, I drink a quart of sake, smoke dynamite. I chase it with tobacco. I love that, tobacco. <laughs> yeah, tobacco. And then y'all. shoot out the lights. Wow. Because I'm a Fujiyama mama, and I'm just about to blow my top. Fujiyama Yama Mama. I can't even say. <laughs> Fujiyama Mama Mama. Fujiyama Yama Fujiyama. Yeah. And when I start erupting, ain't nobody gonna make me stop. Well, she's saying it like the men. I mean, she's spelling it all out there. I mean, you know, just yeah. put it all out there. So, yeah. And then 
there's one last song mm-hmm. I want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a mistake on the list. Okay. Now, believe it or not, I listened to 80 of the 100 songs yeah. on the list. Wow. I just went down the list. You spent some time, Jim. Yeah. Most of them are only two minutes, you know. Yeah. They well, are that's the other rockabilly. Thing. A lot of rockabilly. Yeah. Yeah, it is short because, you know. They're mostly um, three chords, four mm-hmm. chords. Mm-hmm. You do have some uh, picking in there sometimes, mm-hmm. but some of the songs are literally just three or four chords. Yeah. So, so you can yeah, basically so write two your, to three minutes. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's just, uh. So you can basically write your own rockabilly song. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just need the chords E, A, D, G, maybe a B. Throw a B mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. D, C, G. You know, write uh-huh. a song about how you need a woman. Yeah. You know? And how you're going to rock it. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, this, so there's a song in there. Now, there's a song by Gene Vincent called Race with the Devil. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. This is not the Gene Vincent song. And this is, I thought it was a newer song when I heard it. And I th- it almost sounds like heavy metal, right? Yeah. But it's from 1969. 69. That's yeah. okay. That's interesting. And it's Race with the Devil by the band named Gun, or sometimes called The Gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 60s progressive. It's not, it doesn't belong in there, but someone picked up on the title. It's a UK band. It's not even rockabilly. Yeah. Now, believe it or not, this band was renamed in 1967 from The Knack. They called (laughs) themselves The Knack. And another thing is there was also another band in the U.S. in the 60s named The Knack in the 60s. So The Knack that we know from 1980 or 79 is... Was not the first Knack. You learn something every day. I wonder if that was part of the lingo back then. Get The Knack... I don't know. I have the yeah. Mac. Interesting. I'm going to segue into Eddie Cochran um, with this great song. You have to listen to it. Mm-hmm. It's called 20 Flight Rock. And that's the song that Paul McCartney impressed John Lennon with. Wow. And it's about a guy whose girlfriend, she lives on the 20th floor mm-hmm. of a building. Mm-hmm. And the elevators broke. Okay. Yeah. So the elevator's broke, and he says, so I'll walk one, two flight, three flight, four, five, six, seven flight, eight flight more. Up on the 20th, I'm starting to drag. 15th floor, I'm already to sag. I'm sorry, 12th floor, I'm starting to drag. Mm -hmm. Get to the top, and I'm too tired to rock. When she calls me up on the telephone... Say, come on over, honey. I'm all alone. I said, baby, you're mighty sweet, but I'm in bed with the aching feet. And this is just such a great song. Too tired to rock. And literally rock, it doesn't mean anything else. She's up there with, a, I think, a record player or something. Yeah, record machine, Mm -hmm. he called it. And I was assuming something else, but he's, yeah. he thinks she's got a record machine. Yeah, and right. there's a great progression in mm-hmm. the, you know, five, six, seven, flight, yeah. eight, flight, more. It, it's such a great song. Check it out. 20 mm-hmm. Flight Rock, Eddie Cochran. So coming up next, um, I'm going to tell you all about Eddie Cochran. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk about... Eddie Cochran. Yeah, that sounds great. For most people that may not have even heard of Eddie Cochran, he was one of the most influential rockabilly artists Mm -hmm. back in the 50s. 
Um, tragically, he died young. So sometimes you wonder if he had lived, would he have been as famous? I mean, even if some of you listeners out there haven't heard of him, um, you probably heard some of his songs, like Summertime Blues. Oh, yeah. Um, song Something Else, which was recorded by the Sex Pistols. Uh, that was would be in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go into... You know, everything about Eddie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born on October 3rd, 1938 in Al- Albert Lee, Minnesota, to Alice and Frank R. Cochran. Mm-hmm. So that was his real, real name, Eddie Cochran. He took music lessons in school, but quit the band to play drums. So cool. this is interesting because he is known for playing the guitar. Yeah, started on drums then. Yeah, and... So, also, rather than taking piano lessons, he he began learning guitar, playing country, and other music he heard on the radio. Mm -hmm. So, he didn't want to take piano lessons, so he decided to play the guitar at that point. Uh, His family moved to Bell Gardens, California in 1952. So, they moved from Minnesota to California. Um, Not sure. Cultural shift there, yeah. I mean, he would see a lot more in California. Maybe a job change. Um, He would have been... Let's see. He was born in 38. He would have been 14, right? Yeah. 38, 52. Mm-hmm. Um, as his guitar playing improved, he formed a band with two friends from his junior high school. Now he dropped out of Bell Gardens High School in his first year, his first year, hmm. to become a professional musician. Wow. Now that is dedication. Yeah. You know, and who knows if it was with the blessing of his parents mm-hmm. um, or maybe... Maybe he was getting better and better or song with songwriting that he knew he had a shot. Uh, during a show featuring many performers at an American Legion Hall, he met Hank Cochran, hmm. a songwriter, and they were not related. Uh, they recorded as the Cochran Brothers, and they Very began cool. performing together. Uh, they recorded a few singles for Echo Records that were fairly successful and helped to establish them as a performing act. And Eddie also worked as a session musician, uh, and he began writing songs. And he made a demo with Jerry Capehart, which was his future manager. Mm-hmm. So in uh, July 1956, Eddie Cochran's first solo artist single was released by Crest Records. It featured Skinny Jim. That was the song. Oh. And it says, now regarded as a rock and roll and hillbilly classic. Probably where Slim Jim Phantom got his name. Wait a minute. Now regarded as a rock and roll and rockabilly classic. Okay. I said hillbilly. (laughs) (laughs) It's close. Yeah. Uh, In the spring of 1956, Boris Petrov asked Cochran if he would appear in the musical comedy film The Girl Can't Help It. So things were moving along. Um, We move uh, to California in 1952. Mm -hmm. Four years later... Um, he was, what, 18, mm-hmm. 18 years old. He's appearing in a movie with Jane Mansfield, wow. who was huge at the time. So he didn't go like the middle of nowhere, California. He was, he was where the action was. Yeah. Yeah. And he knew to the make right... those connections and get in. And he knew the right people. Um, and he agreed and performed the song 20 Flight Rock in the movie, which we talked about yeah. before. Great song. Mm-hmm. And again, check that out, 20 Flight Rock. Now, this song was written by AMI staff writer Ned Fairchild. Mm -hmm. 
What's interesting is Ned was a woman. I don't know back then if uh, they looked down on female songwriters. Yeah. Uh, her name was Nelda Fairchild. Mm -hmm. So in the summer of 1957, Liberty Records issued Cochran's only studio album released during his lifetime. Wow. Singing to My Baby. So you know what we're getting at. Uh, Eddie, uh, unfortunately, died pretty young. Mm -hmm. So in 57, he would have been 19. And then in 1958, he seemed to find his stride in the famous teenage anthem, Summertime Blues. Hmm. And it was also co-written with Jerry Capehart. That was mm -hmm. his manager. And Jerry wrote a um, song for Glenn Campbell. Yeah. Uh, Turn Around, Look at Me. Uh, with this song, Cochran was established as one of the most important influences on rock and roll in the 1950s, both lyrically and musically. And again, with 20 Flight Rock, that song just lyrically that's what makes you know makes a great song yeah the and lyrics it, and the music and it's called rock already at that point so they're, yeah. they're going with rock yeah now eddie you know was moving along here um he was getting really famous in the u.s uh, i saw a video of him on dick clark and it wasn't called um bandstand hmm. it was like beach nut something beach nut the brand beach nut of hour oh beach nut the oh, brand maybe. of gum yeah maybe yeah beach nut what's gum interesting the corporate sponsor yeah. yeah so it's interesting i love going back and watching these old videos mm -hmm. of these old i love classic like 50s i love anything 50s mm -hmm. dick clark for some reason is is in a wheelbarrow <laughs> and i i can't i didn't look into it. i don't know there, there's another guy because i'm like I, look, I see the first guy, and I'm like, that's not Dick Clark. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, Dick Clark's in this wheelbarrow, yeah. and the guy pushes him out of the way in the wheelbarrow, so maybe it was for a skit. Is this earlier. the hillbilly thing? Is this the rockabilly hillbilly Maybe. Thing? Let's put him in a wheelbarrow and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't have a corncob pipe in his mouth yeah, or anything. Yeah, So there's this big TV set, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the the middle of it opens... Mm -hmm. like doors maybe to reveal eddie cochran and these steps this is very innovative i yeah. think but if, for the time these yeah. steps come out of the bottom like three steps come out of the bottom of the thing and eddie climbs down the steps and the the audience are on bleachers mm -hmm. right from yeah. the left and from the right as the song starts that the bleachers swing in <laughs> left wow. and right so that eddie is in the middle and he's singing to them wow and i don't know if it was pre-recorded there's no plug for his guitar yeah um so you might be lip syncing lip playing yeah i mean yeah so back to um eddie was becoming very popular very popular with the teenage girls i think i saw another video where he's singing to a girl mm -hmm. um you know he's up he's up in the where the where they were sitting and he's just singing this song to these girls. In early 59, um, two of Eddie's friends uh, were Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. It's impressive. He, um, he knew Buddy uh, pretty well. Supposedly, he was supposed to go on the tour that Buddy was doing, along with the Big Bopper, of course. Yeah. We all know what happened, tragically, uh, with the plane crash. Pretty sure I I heard that uh, he got a gig on a, another TV show or something, and he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. 
And this was before um, Eddie did his tour in Britain with Gene Vincent. His friend, Cochran's friends and family later said that he was badly shaken by their deaths and he, and he developed a morbid premonition that he would also die young. Mm -hmm. We're not going to go in that right now. I, I want to go over to, I want to talk about Eddie's girlfriend. Okay. Okay. Now, there was he probably a, had several, you know. He's, he's popular with the ladies and all, but uh, well, one particular girlfriend. Yeah. Now, supposedly, Eddie was not in love with anybody else but this girl. This girl did not know that Eddie was in love with her. Eddie didn't know that she was also in love with him. Mm -hmm. She pursued him for a good year or more. Hmm. She was, I think, 17 at the time. Uh, the amazing thing is that at the age of 18, so around the same time, uh, actually, she was probably around 18, because this, this, before she met Eddie, she wrote a song. She was a songwriter. Mm -hmm. And her, let's say her name, her name is Sharon Shelley. It's S-H-E-E-L-E-Y. Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote a song called Poor Little Fool, which Ricky Nelson recorded. In 1958, it became Nelson's first number one and the Billboard Hot 100's first number one. And at the age of 18, she was the youngest woman to write an American number one hit. Yeah. So I don't know how many songs she wrote before this, but to write a song goes to number one. <laughs> the manager and songwriting partner of Eddie Cochran, uh, he then agreed to look after Shelley's interests and she and Cochran began a relationship. Uh, so I know this was soon. This was after there was a um, there was a party, mm -hmm. a New Year's Eve party. Mm -hmm. Now before this, um, Sharon, uh, she was trying to impress Eddie. She went out and she spent. She said she spent. Uh, this is from a documentary, by the way. I watched mm -hmm. on YouTube. And again, this one's about. This one might be like twenty minutes long. It's not a very long document but it's a really good one mm -hmm. and um she spent all her money to impress eddie with buying new dresses and he didn't take any you know notice of her yeah typically guys don't see the value yeah. of that so she was invited to a new year's eve party and buddy holly was there and the everly brothers but she she kind of gave up and she was she was actually kind of mad that he still hadn't noticed her. So she basically wore, she said, a sweatshirt, sweatpants, or jeans. She said Levi jeans, mm -hmm. tennis shoes, put her hair in pigtails, no makeup. After, the, um, after everybody left, that's when Eddie came out and asked her, are you in love with me? <laughs> and she, wanted, she said she wanted to punch him. Um, <laughs> And he told her, he said, well, you better be because I'm in love with you. Yeah, come, uh, just being a little forceful and straightforward there. So this is a mm -hmm. sweet story. Uh, you know, these two people that work side by side because Sharon, she wrote some of the Eddie Cochran songs. So they worked side by side and um, she helped write the songs, Eddie Cochran's biggest hits. Mm -hmm. So in April 1960, uh, she traveled to England to join uh, Eddie Cochran mm -hmm. and Gene Vincent, who were touring there. And we talked about that earlier. 
where Gene Vincent was originally signed on the tour and they wanted to get Eddie. And at one point, this is in the documentary, they knew Eddie Cochran uh, was a bigger draw for the crowds than Gene Vincent. Gene Vincent uh, wrote Bebop Alula. Yeah. Uh, but Eddie didn't want his name above Gene's. Uh, he didn't think Gene could handle it. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. Now, Eddie, like we mentioned before, had a premonition of his own death. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was there's a um, event that took place at the hotel. I don't know how soon before he died. Sharon woke up one night there in the hotel, and Eddie's not there next to her. And he's downstairs, and he's pounding on the door of the manager's office. Hmm. The manager comes out, and he grabs him by the, uh, say, the throat or mm-hmm. his shirt, and says, I'm going to die, and there's nothing you can do about it. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So the the plane crash, Buddy Holly, we all know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, that really affected him. Right. But, you know, some people have these premonitions, and... Luckily, they don't happen. Yeah. But for Eddie, unfortunately, they were on tour, of course, in England. His girlfriend and him were unofficially engaged because actually that night, uh, New Year's Eve party, mm-hmm. uh, he asked her to marry him. Just like yeah. that. Yeah. Now they had known each other for probably a year and a half or more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they knew they really liked each other. On the night of April 16th, 1960, it was Shelley, Gene Vincent, and Eddie Cochran were traveling in a private taxi from a concert in Bristol to London Heathrow Airport. So they were trying to get to the airport. They right. might have been late. Mm-hmm. And it slammed into a lamppost. A driver was driving way too fast. As far as I read, I think the car kind of went up on its side or something. The door flew up. They all flew out of the car. Wow. No seat belts, you know, yeah. just flying out. So, unfortunately, Eddie was the one with the severe head injuries. Gene Vincent, he broke his ribs and his collarbone. He already, Gene Vincent already had a leg injury. I mean, he could perform, mm-hmm. but he was in a motorcycle accident years earlier. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the driver was only fined 50 pounds, and he was banned from driving for 15 years. The driver was 20 years old. Yeah. His name was George Martin. No relation to the yeah. Beatles, George Martin. Just Yeah, just driving too fast. So ironically, to the airport. They were driving to the airport. They were trying to get, yeah. Yeah, trying to catch a plane, but, yeah. but crashing instead. Yeah. Hmm. So the the girlfriend, uh, the fiance, mm-hmm. Sharon, Sharon, she went on to write. Um, she she went on to write other songs afterwards, and I think and she did eventually get married. Unfortunately, she mm-hmm. passed away, I think, in two thousand two, mm-hmm. a while ago. Um, the other thing is, I found that they used to I, the earliest or the the last festival I could find. There's an Eddie Cochran festival. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I could find was 2016. Yeah, that's not long ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this documentary that's on YouTube, it starts out... What's it called? 
So the documentary is called, uh, it's BBC Arena. Mm -hmm. It might have been, uh, maybe they put out different documentaries. Yeah. Yeah. But look up BBC Arena, um, Eddie Cochran documentary. Mm -hmm. The documentary starts out, there's a guy, he's almost your tour guide. He's, he's in the back of a car talking to you. Mm -hmm. And this is from the 80s, uh, I assume. And he's taking he's taking you on the on on the road, um, mm-hmm. you know where the car crash was, and and then they show a bar. They have a Eddie Cochran tour. It's a whole Eddie Cochran day. They had I, the guy mentions they're going to have bands later on. Wow! Uh, but they're they're all gathering up to go to the hospital where they they went. Mm-hmm. Now at the hospital outside the hospital is a monument. There's three steps coming down from it, mm-hmm. and it's quoting uh, Eddie Cochran's song called Three Steps to Heaven." Wow, you know it's one step. I I don't know the lyrics offhand, but uh, yeah, it's quoting mm-hmm. that song, and it's a nice, nice um, monument to Eddie Cochran. Check out Eddie Cochran. Um, even though he lived a short life, he had a lot of lot of great songs. Yeah. Like Buddy Holly and Richie Valens, I assume only had like one one or two albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't have had more than yeah. one or two. And Eddie Cochran had one studio album. Yeah. He did. And I'm sure there might be some live stuff. Like I said, the look up Dick Clark, Beach Nut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't know what he could have achieved, what he would have recorded, you know, later written. And recorded. Yeah. Someone uh, mentioned that it would have been a great thing if... Now, Gene Vincent, he died back in the 70s. Hmm. He had some stomach ulcer ailment and died. Yeah. Uh, he was still performing into the 70s, Gene Vincent. Yeah. Um, someone mentioned it would have been great if Gene and Eddie, when the, the Stray Cats came around, mm-hmm. they had done some yeah. concerts with them. That would have been wild. You know, some songs with them. Yeah. So. Yeah. Jim, thanks for that uh, specific look. Eddie Cochran. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a lot about history. We want to uh, just bring it to an end with uh, talking about uh, two people who uh, are still doing it. Yeah. Still doing rockabilly. And uh, I was sitting at home watching uh, the BBC, I believe. Um, but it was, um, saw a documentary on the Boogie Playboys. Okay. So I took interest in this. And uh, the Boogie Playboys are doing rockabilly in Hong Kong. It's three Chinese guys. And they played this punk rock bar called The Hidden Agenda. And The Hidden Agenda, this bar has been shut down repeatedly mm-hmm. by the Chinese government who thinks that they're doing, you know, subversive stuff, anti-government. Yeah. You know, they're just having a good time. Yeah. You know, it's rockabilly. Uh, you've got acoustic guitar, electric guitar. Now, were you in Hong Kong at the time? No, so I miss these guys um, because when I was in Hong Kong, they were mm-hmm. toddlers. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Um. So only because I'm too old did I miss them. Okay. Or they're too young. So uh, you also check out this video. It's uh, from an interview from an American reporter, and you can see it. It's called Search HK Rockabilly. They're singing in Cantonese. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this video, and they're at this gig sponsored by. Jack Daniels whiskey, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> so it's great. So, so you see Jack Daniels and you see uh, all everyone's almost everyone's. Yeah, they perform uh, in English too, or was 
No, there. Uh, well, I, what I saw, I saw um, a couple other videos, and everything is speaking in Cantonese. Okay. So it's Cantonese, but it's with that attitude that is yeah. rockabilly. Wow. You know? Yeah. So uh, I could interpret the lyrics, you know, but uh, but I did hear some interpretation, and the uh, yeah, the subject matter. Mm -hmm. It's just you know yeah. we're out here to rock. We're doing it. So this is from 2018, and uh, I think they're still actively playing. There's another music video uh, that shows them touring America. It's hilarious. Mm -hmm. They're doing a music video, these <laughs> Cantonese-speaking Chinese rockabilly people, and they're at the uh, one of the rims of the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. And that's their music <laughs> nice. video. It's just, it's just wild. So uh, people are still doing it. You know, we've got mm -hmm. the Stray Cats in the, in the 80s and into the 90s, and Brian Setzer just, you know, yeah. Just just putting out music. These guys, the Boogie Playboys, shout out to you guys in Hong Kong. And then, of course, uh, the uh, interview that you just put on uh, just recently, and that is Jittery Jack. Yeah. Great guy. Jittery Jack. Jittery Jack still, still making the music. Yeah. Still making it real. Another band is uh, Reverend Horton Heat. That's right. That's right. I saw them back in the mid-90s at the Stone Pony. Mm -hmm. It's in Asbury Park, yeah. New Jersey. I've been outside once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get in. And they, um, they're they pretty similar, mm -hmm. I would say, to the Stray Cats. Yeah. Um, even the sound, you know, it's true rockabilly. And I think they're called The Reverend Horton Heat. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think the lead singer, he was called The Reverend at one time. Mm -hmm. So they became The Reverend Horton Heat. Uh, but there's a song called... Psychobilly Freakout. Yeah. And it's a good... I have, I have heard of yeah. that. And it's mostly instrumental, fast guitar, and then there's a break, and they just... The lead singer shouts, It's Psychobilly Freakout! And it's ding 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 ding, you know? So you gotta listen to that one as your introduction yeah. to the Reverend Horton Heat. Check out that. We also mentioned before Emile DeMay. Mm -hmm. uh, check her out. She... I'm pretty sure she does not play an instrument. Her instrument is her voice. Mm -hmm. and I listened on the way over. I listened to some songs by her yeah. on the way over to the studio today. And she is from Ireland. Mm -hmm. And when she sings, she you don't you don't hear that Irish accent. Mm -hmm. um, but she she dresses the part. She's true rockabilly mama. You want to call it. <laughs> Uh, I think she's fairly young. She's probably in her 40s. Mm -hmm. uh, That's young for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think her last album was probably a year ago, mm -hmm. two years ago. So she's... But check her out, Emil de May, uh, for New Rockabilly. Yeah. And again, one last... Um, once again, check out the... If you have Apple Music, um, check out the Rockabilly Essential playlist. Mm -hmm. There might be one on Spotify. You know, check out, what do we say, Peanuts Wilson. Check yeah. him out. Mm -hmm. LaBeef. Mr. Yeah, LaBeef. Sleepy LaBeef. He's got a deep voice. He's he's very interesting. <laughs> I'm sleepy. Charlie Feathers is another one. Mm -hmm. uh, was it Bottle to the Baby? That's yeah. an interesting song. And Wanda Jackson. So mm -hmm. that, that'll give you enough if you're not too familiar with Rockabilly. And, yeah. and of course, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, mm -hmm. you want to check out. And, and Buddy Holly, who I love. Buddy Holly, I'd consider him, we consider him Rockabilly. So, mm -hmm. All right, thanks for listening and spending your time with us. Yeah. Until next time, keep listening. <laughs> Intro and exit music by the band 99%.
Today's show is produced and edited by Jim Thatcher. You can find Jim and Mike Talk on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and their host site, Podbean. The songs Baby Come Back and Long Gone Daddy were used with permission from Pat Coop. Used with royalty-free permission were the songs It's Time and Halo Down by Big Sandy and his Twilight Boys. And the song Out All Night by the Riptones. Tones.